Gamarjoba, and welcome to the History of Sacadvelo, Georgia. I'm your host, Roberto, and this is episode 27, Duraz Gorgasal. In today's episode, we will deal with Vakhtang's fights against both the Byzantine and Sasanid empires, and just how he got the epithet Gorgasali. And as always, a warning that we do not have much information on Vakhtang, so we are relying heavily on the Chronicles for the information that we do know. As is always the case in history, everything is filtered through the biases, prejudices, and unique perspectives of the people who wrote things down, including the fact that these facts were often recorded centuries after when they allegedly took place. The information presented here will reflect the particular religious and cultural beliefs of the chroniclers and their patrons, the rulers of the Bagarationi dynasty. Before I continue on, I have a few announcements to make. First of all, I need to apologize for an error. In the last episode, I said that Vakhtang would be going off to war with the Heptalites. That was a mistake on my part. I apparently jumped ahead in my notes when writing my script, and the Shah actually asked him to go to war with Byzantium. The war against the Heptalites will be the next episode. In better news, we need to acknowledge two new Eristavi joining our ranks. First, we have Eristavi Sarah of Bakhmaro, Defender of the H, and we have Eristavi Hali of Gori, the kingdom's favorite person to play dice against. We thank you for your contributions and hope you enjoy the show. In our last episode, we saw Vakhtang clearing out the Assetian threat to his north, thus solidifying his hold on Kartli and securing his kingdom along with his subsequent marriage to Balindukt, niece of Shah Peroz of the Sasanian Empire of Iran. This came with a catch, however, as the Shah then asked him to go to war with Byzantium. We enter the capital of Mitischieta and see Vakhtang in conference with his paspeto, Juanched, and the rest of his Eristavi, discussing the logistics of how to feed and supply all the soldiers they will need for a successful campaign against the Byzantine cities, and if they could even build the siege equipment they would need to overcome the Eastern Empire's famously impenetrable fortifications. Regardless, they had no choice but to go to war considering the king had just married the Shah's niece, so all the forces of Kartli were massed on both sides of the Mitkvadi River, settling in the outskirts of Mitischieta and the fortress side of Admazi. News arrived from the east that Vakhtang's forces would be supplemented by those of his uncle, Varaz Bakar. Varaz Bakar, if you may recall, was the man placed in charge of the region of Rani and the former Pityach, or Viceroy, of Caucasian Albania. He supplied cavalry units and infantry from the regions of Abarbadagan, Rani, and Bovakan that considerably boosted the forces of the young king of Kartli. Despite the support of his uncle, Vakhtang did not feel completely sure that his forces were large enough for a campaign against Byzantium. To remedy this, he met with some of the nobles of Armenia at the Perjokapi fortress on the way from his homeland. There, he convinced them that an alliance would guarantee victory, banking on his own track record of military success. From there, they marched to Byzantium together. Their first stop. Karnukalaki fortress near Trebizond, defended by three high walls. 
Vakhtan began the siege and ordered the rest of his forces to keep moving deeper into Byzantine territory to avoid the entire army being cornered in one spot. According to Juan Sher Juan Sheriani, one of the authors of the Chronicles, the troops of Varazbakar, against Vakhtang's orders, raided monasteries and churches, slaughtered monks and priests, and stole riches from these holy sites. When he learned of this, Vakhtang gave a rousing speech that implored them not to do so again, as attacking fellow Christians would only bring them to ruin. To apologize to the holy men, he gave them leave to go where they wished and ordered his uncle's troops to withdraw from the holy buildings. A monk named Samuel and a priest named Peter, a disciple of Gregory the Theologian, approached the Kartveli camp and entered Vakhtang's tent, ostensibly to offer thanks for this kindness. Ever the pious Christian, Vakhtang invited them to have dinner with him. Although I cannot imagine a dinner with the man invading your homeland at the behest of a non-Christian shah would be anything but tense, things went smoothly for the most part. That is, until Vakhtang claimed that he was attempting to avoid destroying churches. This infuriated Peter and Samuel, who began berating Vakhtang for his hypocrisy. You are willing to protect churches of stone that can be rebuilt, they said, but show no mercy for the churches of the living, whose congregants cannot return from the dead. Vakhtang was unable to answer, his belief shaken for what he was doing at the behest of a heathen that worships fire. Peter and Samuel did not leave him without an alternative, however. They begged Vakhtang to throw away the relations he had with Sassanids and join a Christian empire. The dinner continued in silence as Vakhtang mulled over the words in his mind, and Samuel and Peter departed. Vakhtang threw himself in prostration before the cross, and prayed through the night for advice on what he had to do to make himself a better Christian. It's at this point where the authors of the Chronicles claim Vakhtang was granted a religious experience, recounted here. As he was praying, a woman with a voice as soft and gentle as the coat of a newborn lamb spoke behind him. He turned around and gazed upon the figure. She was dressed in all white with leaves and branches tussled in her hair, and a grapevine cross in her hand. Vakhtang had heard of this legendary woman before. This was the Christianizer of his family line and all of Cartley. This was Saint Nino, equal to the Apostles, and the Enlightener of Sacadevelo. Saint Nino took hold of Vakhtang's hand, and she took him on a journey across Anatolia in a few minutes, till they arrived at a grand city, sitting on an isthmus. With a multitude of walls surrounding it and grand churches in the center, Vakhtang looked around and lost sight of Saint Nino. He entered Constantinople and found himself in the imperial palace in the throne room, where he saw two thrones in front of him. On one throne was a man dressed in purple with a diadem adorning his brow, and on the other was an old man in a white smock and a luminous crown. At the old man's feet, he found his guide, Nino, sitting and praying. Out of nowhere, the priest and monk with whom he had dined, Peter and Samuel, approached and took both of Vakhtang's hands. They told Vakhtang to bow to Gregory the Illuminator, the man who Christianized Armenia. Vakhtang immediately bowed to the saint. This sign of respect was rebuked, though, as Gregory the Illuminator berated Vakhtang for undoing all of the hard work 
that he and Nino had done for the Caucasus. Nino beseeched her mentor to be calm. Gregory then bade Vaktang take his crown and place it onto Peter's head and a much simpler crown on Samuel's head. Nino then bade Vaktang to give gifts of grandesse to the emperor, Zeno, who sat next to Gregory, and they greeted each other with a kiss. Zeno asked Vaktang to sit beside him, where they conversed about what a Christian ruler needs. With that, Zeno handed Vaktang a ring marked with a seal and embedded with a dazzling stone. The emperor requested that Vaktang promise to Christ to fight his enemies and to take for himself a crown from the cross. Vaktang gazed upon it, trembling with dread. Would he do as God called him to do and turn against his wife's uncle, or would he betray the faith of his predecessors? Suddenly, it was as if Nino's prayers filled the room. Peter and Samuel added their voices, and all three vouched for the sincerity of Vaktang's repentance, although he had said nothing aloud. Emperor Zeno listened to the words of the trio, removed the crown from the cross, and placed it atop of Vaktang's head. Gregory the Illuminator spoke up and gave Vaktang three prophecies. The first being that among all those within his family and his Persian relatives, that he would be the deepest believer of Christ. Second, he would commence the building of grand churches and appoint bishops and archbishops within his realm. And third, that the final crown he would receive in life would be that of martyrdom. In the blink of an eye, these apparitions disappeared and found himself alone with Peter and Samuel. He asked them what the visions meant, which Peter explained. The crowns that Vaktang placed on Peter and Samuel's heads would make them archbishop and bishop, respectively. The ring Emperor Zeno gave him foretold his marriage to the emperor's daughter, Helena, and the restoration of the conquered Kartveli lands. The crown from the cross that he placed on his own head marked him as a champion of the faith that would encourage the growth and expansion of Christianity. The prophecies, on the other hand, were much more straightforward. The first and second prophecy stating that he would be a deep believer and a pointer of bishops, meant that he would be the one to establish the faith in Cartley and grant the right people the positions to overpower his anti-Christian enemies till the end of his days. The third was more ominous. He would never fall into the hands of his enemies, become decrepit or old, but would fall in battle only for the sake of his faith. Thus ended the holy vision of Vaktang. You might be wondering why we included this clearly legendary story. Well, like we said before, we're just going off what the chroniclers wrote, as they are our primary historical source here. It is not historically sound by any academic standard, but whether or not you believe this actually happened depends on your personal beliefs. Plus, it gives you insight how trustworthy the chronicles are overall, and teaches a valuable lesson about dealing with historical sources of, well, let's say questionable accuracy. Returning to Vaktang, birdsong and men barking orders awoke Vaktang from his slumber. He couldn't believe what he had just seen, and he summoned Peter and Samuel. He asked the monks about their dreams that night, and they confirmed that they too had seen the same thing, most likely wondering how they could use the young king's lack of incredulity to their advantage. Gulping, Vaktang asked the men what he should do. Trebizond was about to fall, 
and his uncle Varaz Bakar was unlikely to be willing to give up the remaining captives. The trio discussed their options and settled on a plan. What is the last thing the Persians and Varaz Bakar would expect? Well, the guy who put this whole campaign together to suddenly switch sides, of course. Once he had a chance to talk to the Persians, he would tell them there was a Byzantine army pursuing the Kartveli, and that he needed their immediate support. But at the same time, they would send a trusted person to Emperor Zeno to let them know he intended to defect. Once the Persian forces arrived, the Kartveli troops would retreat and leave the rescuers outnumbered and wide open. Vakhtang asked Peter if he would be his envoy to the Byzantine Emperor. Peter agreed and left immediately. In the meantime, Vakhtang would summon his commanders, order them to move to a more defensible position that would allow for a retreat. At the Emperor's court, Peter told Emperor Zeno everything that had occurred, and somehow Zeno agreed to all the conditions, reaffirming everything he had told Vakhtang in the dream and added that he would support the Kartveli in destroying the invading Persian force to liberate the Christian Kartli from subservience to the pagan Sassanids. This most certainly did not happen, but the chroniclers love to over-exaggerate. To assist, a fleet of 500 Dromon ships equipped with Greek fire would provide sea support to the besieged city of Trebizond. These men were ordered to approach Vakhtang's camp, but to not initiate a battle. Vakhtang likewise agreed not to attack, but Persian soldiers unaware of the plot were itching for a fight, especially since they heard of the 500 Dromon ships on the way. Before any sort of battle could commence, a Byzantine envoy arrived bearing gifts to Vakhtang. The envoy, very loudly, told Vakhtang that his force should not retreat, so that this Persian force that had entered their lands could be fully destroyed. Vakhtang in response, mentioned that they were ready for him, and if they were really ready, they should meet him now. Otherwise, he'd ensure that Constantinople fell to him. Under the cover of the night, the envoy entered Vakhtang's quarters unseen. They spoke in hushed tones, and the true gift was given to Vakhtang. A golden cross, a crown, and vestments. Emperor Zeno further promised a fortress of Tukharisi and the remainder of Lazika to Vakhtang, as they were within rightful Kartveli territory. Through this discussion, Vakhtang had misgivings on the dishonorability of the plot. His honor was sullied the more he plotted in secret for the downfall of his so-called allies, like a coward. To save some face, he requested the Byzantines attempt to avoid bloodshed altogether, since the Persian auxiliary forces were more likely to fight to the last man than surrender outright to a clearly superior force. Peter, who had joined the envoy, soothed Vakhtang's fears, and they promised that they would try to tell the Byzantine commander, Polycarpus Logothfeet, to take caution. The envoy and Peter exited the king's quarters, and out from the shadows emerged Vakhtang's uncle, Varaz Bakar. The ruler of Rani Movakan had heard everything, and reproached him for wanting to deliver this massive Persian force to the Byzantines, and that he was a traitor for doing so. This report would need to go straight to Shah Peroz. But his uncle was too late, because the sound of trumpets tore through the air. The Byzantines had arrived to make battle. Viraz Bakar took charge of his men, and along with the forces of the Armenians, Persians, and the king of Derbent, went to meet with the Byzantine force. 
The Vogtong's men knew their actual orders, and the Kartveli force remained behind. Vogtong watched the battle from the hilltop, as Byzantine and Persians fell on the field, and he prayed for the bloodshed, which he caused, to stop. The Persian force was being overrun, and the Byzantines delivered a crushing defeat to the army of the new Persian Empire. Among the fallen was Viraz Bakar himself. Hopping off of his chariot, Vagtang spoke to his baspeto, Juan Sher, and lamented the deaths of the Persians, proceeded to blame the victim anyway by saying their own heathen ways were the cause. The remainder of the Persian army found themselves at the location the Kartveli had retreated to and joined the army, all but unaware of the betrayal, save for a few commanders from Caucasian Albania. Vagtang ordered the banner of the cross be raised and to march to Adabardagan to drive out the rest of the Persians from the Caucasus. Vaktang ordered everyone to bow before the cross to ensure victory. He then ordered an Aristavi, Dimitre, and Juan Sher to kill everyone and anyone who so refused to bow before the symbol of the Lord. Bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy there, considering dead men cannot fight, but whatever. Almost all of the men bowed down, save for one, Borzo of Movakan, a vassal of Varaz Bakar. He spat in the direction of the cross and said that he would rather die than forsake Ahura Mazda for a piece of rotting wood adorned with gold and precious stones. At these last words left his tongue, Juancher cut the man down. There would be no dissension from Christ in the Kartveli army. Back in the destroyed Kartveli camp, Polycarpo saw Kartveli roaming around that he perceived as a threat, in spite of their orders. They still had besieged Trebizond and raided the surrounding areas, and must pay for it. He sent word to Vaktang, challenging one of his men to a duel. Vaktang asked around the camp to see if anyone would be his champion, but not one man found themselves worthy of the cause. The herald went through the whole army twice, and not even one person spoke up. With that, Vaktang unsheathed his sword, touched a cross with it, and fastened his shield to his arm. He looked over to his troops, saying, A lion is not equal to a bull, for I am a king and you are serfs, but I am ready to humbly give my life for my people, to make them believe in the power of the cross. The vengeful Polycarpos approached the Kartveli encampment to meet the pious king of the Kartli. Vaktang's demeanor was cool and confident as he strode into battle, accompanied by the shouts of his men. Polycarpos behaved like a crazed wolf and went thrusting his spear at Vaktang. Vaktang blocked them all, but one managed to break clean through the shield. However, the spear was now stuck. Vaktang tossed the shield aside, knocking Polycarpos off balance, and opened the Byzantine commander from ear to jawbone with his sword. Vaktang took his head and presented it to the cross, saying, Such will be the lot of everyone who abandons you. With the death of Polycarpos, the worn-out Byzantines and fresh Kartveli armies erupted into battle. The Kartveli fought bravely and pushed the Byzantine force further and further back until their backs were to the sea. The Byzantines were slaughtered, except for the few who escaped to make their way back into the sea to escape the Kartveli onslaught. Vaktang's forces were depleted as well, though, having lost a huge amount of men. The battle was not easy for either side. With that, he returned to the former camp and searched for the remains of his uncle, Baraz Bakar. Once found, he had them anointed with alloy and myrrh 
and sent back to Barda in Caucasian Albania. Now resting in his camp, Vaktang had his scribe write a letter to the Byzantine emperor saying, God's wisdom is incomprehensible. God's wills triumph over the human mind and will. As I know, your will had no part in what Polycarpus did. Neither did I participate in the intrigues of my mother's brother. The malicious intentions of both brought evil on their heads, and the Lord did this to show the newly converted people who were seized by dread seeing the power of his faith. But he brought them happiness and treated them like his prodigal children. You have a privileged birthright before God and will retain it forever. I have assuaged my grief over my mother's brother and avenged the murderers of your sister's son. I wish to console you with 780,000 men whom the Lord has saved. And if you deign to meet me, be quick. Otherwise, let us settle our affairs through envoys. For it is distressing for us to stay longer in this country, which is in a ruined condition. End quote. This letter brought Emperor Zeno great sorrow, as the alliance that he had just formed with Vaktang seemed to be ending. But upon further reading, it seemed that Vaktang did want to continue their alliance, especially as the captured soldiers were released. With that, he summoned the king of Kartli to him, and they exchanged hostages. They talked amongst themselves and settled any issues the two had between them. Vaktang's control of Lazika was cemented, thus returning Kartli back to its original borders, from the fortress of Tukharisi and Olaf Klarjeti, and from the sea to the Arsiani Mountains. However, this conversation furthered another thought in the Emperor Zeno's head. Parts of Abkhazia, especially those further to the north, were rightfully Byzantine, as they had been Greek-speaking and owned since the times of ancient Greece. Vaktang, who had no rightful control over the area, agreed to return the lands. Of course, he wouldn't be empty-handed, as Emperor Zeno officially offered his daughter Helena from his first non-imperial marriage to Vaktang as his wife. Vaktang did not refuse this incredibly generous offer, but he was still married to Balindukt, the niece of Shah Peroz. Leaving Anatolia, Vaktang returned to Metisheta, where he was greeted with great joy from all the people for his victories against Persia and even regaining lost territories. He entered his palace, content at remembering that Balindukt had been pregnant before his departure, and when he arrived at the royal chambers, he heard the sound of two children crying. Balindukt was nowhere in sight, and it was his mother, Sagdukt, and his sister, Huaranze, holding two newborns. While Vaktang was gone, Balanduk had gone into labor and given birth to twins, a boy named Dachi, and a girl the Chroniclers do not name. Vaktang was distraught at the loss of his wife, but took it as a sign that he was meant to marry the imperial princess. While preparations were made to bring Helena to Metaschieta, Vaktang could not call for her just yet. He was in his period of mourning, and he also had to prepare for a battle against the Persians, who by now had heard of his betrayal. Vaktang fortified the towns and fortresses and stocked them with supplies, men, and anything else he needed to prepare logistically for a prolonged war against a much larger force. He assembled an elite force, which he housed in Tisheta. The king of Kartli also had to stop any attempts of a Persian fifth column from arising within his country. He imprisoned Binkaran, the head of the Zoroastrian Magi, and destroyed any of the remaining Zoroastrian temples in his lands. 
because that would certainly not anger Persian forces in his country. Once done, all he said was, I fulfilled my promise. Wherever I discover a house of fire worshippers, I flood it with urine, and I subject their priests and spies to torture. After all, he believed he received a mission from St. Nino and Gregory themselves to ensure that the Caucasus remained Christian. Granted, neither Christ himself nor Nino ever killed anyone or forced him to become Christian, but there's no sense in sweating the details, is there? All of the preparations took three years to complete because the Shah was still taking time to reinforce his own military. The Persian force assembled and camped at Deir Bent, which provided one of the few land routes into Kartli. It was around this time that the former bishop died, and Vakhtang appointed a priest named Michael as the new bishop. Vakhtang eagerly awaited the support of the Byzantines, but the aggression of the Ostrogoths removed any chance of Byzantine support in the face of the Sassanid incursion into Kartli. Vakhtang was well prepared, though, as he had men stationed all over. An elite force within Metesheta proper and two large units, headed by Nasra, the commander of Somkiti, and Mirdat, the commander of Shida Kartli. To increase the ease of movements for his troops, Vakhtang ordered the expansion of the Mogveti Bridge to be 120 meters wide. This proved useful as the Persian army entered Kartli and raided the towns on their path to Metesheta. The forces of Nasra and Mirda met the Persian force in battle. Vakhtang and Juansher remained in Metesheta as long as they could to defend the city, but the Kartveli force began to give way. Seeing this, Vakhtang adorned himself with a golden helmet, fashioned to the likeness of a wolf on the front and that of a lion in the back, picked up his spear, and with his elite cavalry force, stormed out of Metesheta. They rode to the different points where the Kartveli found themselves weakening and wreaked havoc on the Persian infantry, bringing small victories in those respective skirmishes. The defense of Armazi lasted for four months, and the news of Vakhtang's prowess spread through the Persian camp. When they saw the golden blazoned wolf helmet approaching from the distance, the Persians would scream out in fear, Duraz Gorgasal! Beware the wolf's head! and retreated from their location. The battle ended in a Kartveli victory, and the troops stood in awe of their king. They had heard the Persians screaming in fear, and decided to grant him the title Gorgasali, or the Wolf's Head. From then on, King Vakhtan Khosroid would forever be known as King Vakhtan Gorgasali. This wasn't the only conclusion to the battle. The Byzantine issue with the Goths had cleared up, and Vakhtang managed to receive a small Byzantine forest that camped in Javakheti. Once word had spread of the Byzantines joining the fray, the Persians decided that they had had enough, and an envoy was sent to sue for peace. To see images and bibliography related to today's episode, please go to our website to check them out under the episodes page at historyofsacadvelo.com. It contains all the links to our social media and email contact information. Sacadvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. To help this podcast continue, please feel free to subscribe to our Patreon or donate via Coffee or PayPal. The link is in the episode transcription and on our website. If you would prefer donating something a bit more tangible, we also have an Amazon wishlist for you to peruse. And the best and most free way to help us is via review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast host, 
as it goes a long way with getting the word out about the show and helping us reach new people to learn about Georgia. Madlaba da Nakbamdis, and thank you for listening to The History of Sacadabello, Georgia. See you next time. Thank <laughs> you.